John chapter 7. If you're like me, you enjoy holidays. Give me an excuse to celebrate and I'm ready. Well, the Jews also like their holidays. And their favorite holiday occurred in the fall of the year. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish historian Josephus referred to it as the holiest and the greatest. Often the Jews just said it was the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was a week of celebration. It was the equivalent of our Fourth of July, our Thanksgiving, and our New Year's Day all rolled into one. John chapter 7 can be broken down into three sections. Verses 1 through 10 lead up to the feast. Verses 11 through 36 occur at the feast. And verses 37 through 52 are on the last day of the feast. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, going back a few books, tells us that Mary had other children other than Jesus. At least four half-brothers, two half-sisters made up Jesus' family. And yet we're told that it wasn't until until after Jesus' resurrection that his brothers embraced him as their Messiah. Why they didn't believe, we're not told. Often familiarity, often jealousy will hinder faith. But the fact that they didn't believe in him didn't stop them from giving him advice here in John chapter 7. In essence, they say, if you really are the Savior of the world then play to the largest stage possible. You need to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. The feast would be a perfect opportunity in their minds for Jesus to strut his stuff. Jesus declined, though. He answers them in verse 6 of chapter 7, My time has not yet come. Did you hear about the insurance agent who got a call from a frantic woman? She said, Do you sell homeowner's insurance? The man said, no, ma'am. He said, yes, we do sell homeowner's insurance. She said, well, can I buy a policy over the phone? That's when he said, no, ma'am, you can't. I'll have to visit your house. He shouted back, well, you better hurry up because my house is on fire. Hey, it's been said, timing is everything. Jesus' brother's response had no sense of the divine timing that governed Jesus' life. Jesus knew that not every opportunity constituted a calling from God. This is important for us to grasp. It wasn't opportunism, but obedience that motivated Jesus. Jesus did go to the feast, but he waited until after it had started. And then he went there incognito. He kept a low profile until the middle of the feast when he appeared in the temple teaching the people. I love verse 15. It says, the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? In other words, he had no formal training, and yet he taught with such power and authority. You know, the Jewish rabbis always served an apprenticeship. Every rabbi had a rabbi, except Jesus. He was a rabbi with no rabbi. He says in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, his rabbi was God. It's been said the Jews taught from authorities. Jesus taught with authority. What a difference that makes. I love chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus says, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God 
or whether I speak on my own authority. In other words, it takes a willing heart, not just an inquisitive mind to know the will of God, to understand God's word. God opens our eyes to his truth when we submit our hands and our feet to do his will. Never forget that. Jesus knew that his Sabbath day healing of the lame man back in chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda had created problems for many of the Jews. In their minds, healing constituted work. And wasn't work prohibited on the Sabbath day? But Jesus addresses this issue in verses 19 through 24. You see, the law had commanded every male child to be circumcised on the eighth day. And the rabbis gave strict observance to this law, even if the eighth day fell on a Sabbath day. Jesus asked the obvious question in verse 23. If surgery can be performed on a Sabbath day, why not a healing? And he warns them in verse 24 against making superficial judgments. Throughout this section, the people ponder if Jesus really is the Messiah. He has no formal education. His roots are too familiar. Won't the Messiah work more miracles? He comes from Galilee. These are all of the questions that the people ask about Jesus. You see, the Jews measured Jesus against Messianic expectations. Little details that they had in the back of their minds while ignoring the measure of the man himself. Jesus' credentials were not the problem. The problem was their prejudice and their unwillingness to believe. Later in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus will say to his disciples, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. But in verse 34 here, he says to the unbelieving Jews, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. They thought he meant Gentile territory, but Jesus was speaking of heaven. You know, tickets to the closing ceremonies of the Olympics are always in high demand. And the closing ceremonies at the Feast of Tabernacles were also a big deal. Author Donald G. called the day mentioned here in John chapter 7 as the day Jesus shouted, one of the few occasions where Jesus raised his voice each day of this eight-day feast, the priest led a processional from the temple to the pool of Siloam to draw water. When he returned, he would pour the water out on the altar there in the temple. It was all as a reminder of how God had brought water from the rock for the people in the wilderness. But on the last day, the priest did something different. He marched around the altar seven times. His actions had a twofold symbolism. For one, it looked backwards. It sort of commemorated Joshua's victory at Jericho when they marched around the wall seven times. But it also looked forward to the day that God would pour out the water of his spirit upon his people. And it was during these closing ceremonies, at the exact moment when the priest poured out the water, that Jesus thundered an invitation, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, he shouts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus promises those who trust in him a spiritual life as refreshing and as powerful and as energetic and as bubbling and overflowing as a raging river. 
Verse 39 tells us that he was speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Know that some of the modern translations question the authenticity of chapter 8. In fact, the NIV offers this preface. Right before verse 53 of chapter 7, it says, The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7 verse 53 through chapter 8 verse 11. To me, this is misleading. That's why I call it the nearly inspired version. (laughs) You see, the story of the woman taken in adultery does occur in some very old manuscripts. In fact, it's referred to by many of the early church fathers. Papias mentioned it in 100 A.D. St. Augustine explained why it was left out of some of the manuscripts. He says that the copyists falsely feared that it might be misconstrued to condone adultery. I like F.B. Meyer's comment, though, about this story of the woman taken in adultery. He writes, It reveals a wisdom so profound, a tenderness to sinners so delicate, a hatred of sin so intense, an insight into the human heart so searching that it's impossible to suppose that the mind of man could have conceived it or the hand of man could have invented it. It has to have come from God. I certainly agree with that. Here in John chapter 8, Jesus rescues a woman from a rocky situation. The law said stoner. What would Jesus say? The woman had been caught in the very act of adultery. The Pharisees thought they had Jesus trapped. If he lets her go, he'll appear soft on sin. If he says stoner, he'll betray the mercy and the grace that he's been teaching. Verse 6 says that Jesus bends down. And he begins to doodle in the dirt. The Greek word used by John to describe what he did means to write against. Somehow Jesus exposed the accuser's sins. Perhaps he wrote in the sand some of the names of the Pharisees' girlfriends. When Jesus finally talks, he doesn't deny the validity of the woman's sentence. Rather, he questions the qualifications of the people seeking to enforce it. He says in verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Understand, Jesus was the only one in that circle that day who had never sinned and had the right to sling a stone. But Jesus chose to forgive this woman and offer her a brand new start. He assures her in verse 11, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Guys, we are all so quick to recall this incident When we're the ones who deserve to be stoned. Let's also remember the Lord's attitude when the stones are in our hands and we're about to judge another person. Remember this incident occurred on the morning after the last day of the feast. During the Feast of Tabernacles, giant candelabras adorned the temple. These huge menorahs lit up Jerusalem at night throughout the feast. But the morning after, the priests were probably in the process of dismantling these candles, these candelabras. And that's when Jesus probably looked around and pointed at them and said in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The light had shined into at least one woman's darkness that day. The question for us is, are we walking in the light of Jesus? 
Jewish law required every claim to be attested to by two witnesses. In verse 18, Jesus claims that his Messiahship is confirmed by both himself and his Father in heaven. In chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus tells us how to be his follower. He says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Of course, this reference to bondage caused the Jews to sort of bristle up. Their patriotic pride sort of came into view. And they say in verse 33, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How quickly they forgot the Egyptians and the Babylonians. But Jesus was speaking of a spiritual bondage. You know, there's a famous line from literature. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. You see, the real prison cells are faithless hearts. They're poisoned minds. You see, sin is the worst warden. And Jesus would agree. He says in verse 34, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Guys, only the Son can truly make you free. Never forget verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, if you abide, where? In my word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If you want to live a free life, an unencumbered, an unhindered life, abide in God's word. Throughout chapter 8, Jesus talks about his relationship with his father. Verse 19, for example. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Verse 29. He who, who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Verse 38. I speak what I have seen with my father. Now, you see, the Jews also claimed that God was their father. In fact, they claimed that Abraham, too, was their father. But Abraham wouldn't have denied the truth and plotted to kill Jesus. You see, they had Abraham's DNA, but they lacked his faith. And notice what the Jews tell Jesus in verse 41. As he speaks of his father, they say in verse 41, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. You see, evidently, they had done a background check on Jesus. And they had heard Mary's account of the virgin birth, and yet they had refused to believe it. Jesus tells them, if God were their father, they would have believed in him. And he stings the Jewish leaders with the truth in verse 44. He says, if you want to know who your father is, I'll tell you, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus really sets them off. In verse 52, when he says, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. They come back and say, What about Abraham and the prophets? They're all dead. But Jesus tells them in verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. Wait a minute. How could Abraham, living two millenniums earlier, have seen Jesus? And here's where Jesus unloads the bombshell. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus used the name for God that Moses was told at the burning bush, and he applied it to himself. Our Lord here is claiming nothing less than deity. And the Jews knew it, 
Look at their response in verse 59. They too picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus somehow managed to escape. Every 20 minutes in the United States, someone goes blind. You know, that must be a horrible experience. I can only think of one thing worse. Imagine a person who has never seen it all. Not a sunset, not a dogwood tree blossom in the springtime, not a baby's smile or a child's giggle. Well, such was the case with this man in John chapter 9. You see, his world is darkness until Jesus turns on the lights. John chapter 9 records a miracle with a message. It's revealing that when Jesus first laid eyes on this blind man, a man who had been blind from birth, he thought of alleviating his suffering, whereas the disciples, their first thought was on a fixing blame. Jesus thought, how can I help? The disciples thought, who's at fault? Does that remind you of yourself? Just for fun, check your attitude the next time you run across a human need. Is your first thought, how can I help? Or is your first thought, what did this guy do to get himself in this situation? In verse 3, Jesus puts an end to their blame game. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, not all sickness is the result of sin. Birth defects, terminal illnesses, calamities of nature are not tragedies that you can necessarily pin on a specific sin. You see, we live in a fallen world where its residents are subject to its fallout. Seemingly innocent people do suffer. Frank Anderson makes this statement. He says, the Bible explains suffering not so much in origins as in goals. The purpose of pain is seen not in its cause, but in its results. The man was born blind so the works of God could be displayed in him. Like so much of the suffering in our own lives, we may never learn the cause in this lifetime, but we know the purpose. Whatever God allows in our lives, He allows for His glory. Whether it be our healing or whether it be our faith in the midst of difficulty. In all that we do, we're to glorify God. And Jesus takes some dirt. And along with a little spit, he makes some miracle mud packs and puts them on the blind man's eyes. He then sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash his face. This is one mud-slinging campaign that has a happy ending. As the mud flowed down his cheeks, light flowed through his eyes. A man born blind could suddenly see with 20-20 vision a miracle. Needless to say, the temple erupted in excitement and astonishment. But leave it to the Pharisees to look past the wonder of the mirror, miracle and zero in on technicalities. You see, it happened to be the Sabbath day. And according to their traditions, healing was taboo on the Sabbath. They concluded that Jesus can't be a man of God if he pays no attention to their version of the law. And so they rushed to squelch the joy and the excitement and put this miracle to rest. They determined to excommunicate anyone who dares call Jesus the Messiah. It's ironic that this man born blind 
now sees the situation clearer than the Jewish leaders. They start to pressure him to deny Jesus' role in the miracle. They say, we know that this man is a sinner. But the blind man answers them in verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. You know, it's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. No one could deny the work that Jesus had done in his life. Hey, let me encourage you to share your testimony. You may not know all the ins and outs of doctrine. You may not know how to combat all the false teachings out there. But you've got a testimony. And no one can deny that once you were blind, but now you see. This blind man is amazed over the blindness of the Jews. How could they deny such an unprecedented miracle? It had never happened before. Would God bestow such power on a sinner? The power of Jesus had to be from God, it seemed clear to him. The Jews kicked this man out of their religious society, but Jesus takes him in. While living under legalism, the man had remained blind. But when Jesus enters his life, he can see. You see, pride and self-righteousness, they too blind us to our own sin. It's grace. It's the love of Jesus that opens our eyes. In John chapter 10, Jesus uses the illustration of a shepherd grazing his sheep to describe his relationship with his people. And he does so for two reasons. First, tending sheep is grueling work. Hey, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. Sheep are totally dependent on their shepherd. Jesus compares himself to a shepherd in order to communicate how much he loves us, how tireless he is in his care and watch over us, how he desires to put so much into a relationship with us. The second reason, though, that's fitting for him to use this analogy is due to the similarity between the sheep and the saints. Guys, sheep are stupid. They're selfish. They're stubborn. Just like you and me. They're prone to wander from the fold. And oh, how they need a shepherd. As sheep, we need to cultivate an intimacy, a familiarity with our shepherd. We need to read His Word. We need to spend time with Him in prayer. We need to learn to recognize the shepherd's voice. Once there was a little girl standing on the windowsill of a burning building. She was blind. But she refused to jump. That is until her daddy came on the scene and began to call her name. She knew it was her daddy's voice. She recognized the voice. And when she heard that familiar voice, she jumped to safety. Guys, the shepherd calls his sheep by name. And when you learn to recognize His voice, it gives you the confidence to take those leaps of faith that our Christian walk requires. Another reason the sheep need a shepherd is to protect them from the thieves. At night, Jesus lies down over the opening of the sheepfold to protect the helpless sheep. He literally is the door of the sheepfold. He says of Satan, verse 10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Never doubt it. Satan's desire for your life is depletion and death. He wants to strip you of what is good and then destroy your life. Jesus' goal for you is abundance and life. 
He wants your life to be rich and full of the things that really matter. In verse 11, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He provides his sheep pasture and protection. They're filled with God's goodness. They have the fulfillment of being used by him. They go in to feed. They go out to serve. In and out, in and out. How he blesses his sheep. Understand the difference between a hireling and a shepherd. Jesus describes it here. You see, the hireling, or the hired hand, you might say, cares not for the ewes, he's in it for the bucks, literally. You see, the hireling works for a paycheck while the shepherd serves for the love of the flock. And if a hireling finds himself in danger, he'll sacrifice the sheep to save his own skin. Whereas Jesus, the good shepherd, he says, that he is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. <clears throat> In God's plan, on the cross, it was the shepherd, not the sheep, who got sheared. Throughout the Old Testament, the sheep were the ones slaughtered to save the shepherd. But now, in the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus, it is the shepherd who dies to save the sheep. And let me say one more word about this contrast between a hireling and a shepherd. The word shepherd in the Latin is the word pastor. Guys, a pastor called by God will want to be a shepherd, not a hireling. You see, a true pastor loves the flock. He senses a responsibility to care for them. And he needs the authority to lead the flock. The problem, though, is that many churches today, they treat the pastor like a hired hand like a simply an employee of the church. The sheep end up controlling the shepherd rather than the shepherd being allowed to lead the sheep. The Feast of Dedication, mentioned in verse 22, was what we know as the Feast of Hanukkah. Jerusalem, in the wintertime, <laughs> is chilly and wet. John probably had on his thermal robes. We're not sure, but the Apostle John may have been the first one to coin the term Long Johns. Oh, boy. And you gave up the Super Bowl in order to come and hear those kinds of jokes? Maybe the cold, though, was what prompted the Jews to get right to the point. They asked Jesus in verse 24, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They act as if Jesus has been vague. He's, he's made his claim very clear. And again, he tells them that he alone has the power to give his sheep eternal life. Verse 28, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that neat? The hand of Jesus is the safest place to be. And his point here is that only God can make such a statement. Verse 30 says it as clearly as possible. Jesus is basically saying here, hey, read my lips. I and my Father are one. He's claiming to be God, nothing less. And in verses 31 through 33, the Jews understand it that way. They take up stones, try to kill him for blasphemy. I'm sure that Jesus today wearies of groups who continue to deny his deity. The cultist, the heathen, the heretic are all guilty of selective reading, just as the Jews were guilty of selective listening. 
pulling passage out of content, context, denying the obvious teachings of Scripture. Hey, guys, the Bible can't make it any plainer. Jesus Christ is God. The love of Jesus is not a pampering love. Rather, it is a perfecting love. The Lord is not obligated to give us what we want when we want it. Sometimes divine delays occur. And God uses them to stretch our faith. And such is the case here in John chapter 11. Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus, had gotten sick. Mary and Martha, his two sisters, had sent to Jesus for help. But the Lord delayed leaving for two days. When he finally did arrive, Lazarus had been dead four days. Jesus had even missed the funeral. Before he leaves, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15, his delay is for their sake. They are about to get a boost to their faith. And here's why they need it. Look at Thomas's attitude in verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. That was the faith of Thomas. When Martha greets Jesus, he promises her that Lazarus will live again. And in verse 24, Martha writes it off as some future resurrection. But Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Martha believed in a doctrine. But Jesus was the doctor. There's a difference. This is the problem often with you and me. We believe in sound doctrine. But do we believe in the power and person behind that doctrine? Okay, you believe that God has the power to one day raise a dead corpse. But can you believe in that power today to revive a dead heart, to restore a dead marriage, to renew even a dead ministry? God wants us not only to believe in doctrine, He wants us to believe in His person and in His power. In verse 35, we're told Jesus wept. Chapter 7 was the day that Jesus shouted. Chapter 11 is the day that Jesus cried. When Jesus wept at the tomb, the people thought that it was because of his great love for Lazarus. But I believe it was because of the people's unbelief. Even when Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away, Martha should have known that something was up, but she doesn't grasp it. Instead, she moans, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. I like how the old King James puts it, Lord, he stinketh. In verse 43, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And notice he specified Lazarus. It's been pointed out that if he didn't, every corpse in the graveyard would have come out of the ground. Jesus calls Lazarus from the dead. And a body still bound in grave clothes comes bounding from the grave. Author Eugene Peterson, he refers to the miracles in the book of John as what he calls God signs. And he says that each of these miracles teach a spiritual lesson. And the same is true with the resurrection of Lazarus. You see, Lazarus typifies the new believer. When Jesus calls our name... We're given new life. We're raised from the dead spiritually. But we're still bound in grave clothes. We're still bound in the trappings of the past. Sinful habits. 
false ways of thinking, bondage, fear, unbiblical attitudes. These are all grave clothes. And hey, for you and me to get freed up so that we can enjoy our new life in Christ, those attitudes have to be undressed. Just as the layers of the shroud were unwrapped around Lazarus' body, our grave clothes have to be taken off one layer at a time. And guess whose responsibility it is to help the new believer shed his grave clothes? Jesus said to the people around Lazarus, Loose him and let him go. Jesus gives spiritual life, but it is our job, the church, to help those new believers who come to Jesus, who join us to get loose from the past, to shed the stuff that keeps them bound. It's our job and our responsibility to one another to help each other get rid of the grave clothes so that we can be free and enjoy the new life that we have in Jesus. At the end of chapter 11, John informs us that Lazarus' resurrection solidified the Jews' desire to kill Jesus. You see, they were jealous of Jesus. And they were threatened by Him. And they figured the Romans would feel the same way. The Romans would probably institute some form of martial law if the populace rose up and began to follow Jesus. And in a military crackdown, they were the ones who would lose because they had the most physical and and financial interests. From now on, the Jews won't rest until Jesus is dead. The high priest Caiaphas prophesies unknowingly in verse 50, It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't mean it this way. (laughs) But in reality, what he said was true. That yes, spiritually, it was necessary for one man to die for the people. He was thinking politically, but what he said was true spiritually. The events in John chapter 12 occur six days before the Passover. Jesus returns to Bethany and imagine the reunion when Jesus pays a visit to the house of Mary and Martha and his old buddy Lazarus. Mary had been keeping a pound of spikenard. It was a perfume that had been imported from India, and it was very expensive. It was probably worth a year's wage. It constituted Mary's life savings. It may even have been her dowry. The perfume represented her opportunity for marriage. What a picture of extravagant, amazing love for Mary to pour out this oil on the feet of Jesus. She begins to wipe his feet with her hair And the odor of the perfume fills the house with this pleasant fragrance. Of course, Mary's act of worship seemed like to Judas a waste of resources. Judas begins to complain, Hey, if if you wanted to do something for his his feet, wouldn't a little Epsom salts have done the trick? What about the poor? How many people could we have fed with this kind of money? Notice though the footnote in verse 6. This he said... Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Jesus, Judas was a crook. But Jesus rebukes him, not for his motive, but for his comments. He says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Jesus reminds them again that he's about to die. Guys, here's what 
Mary understood that Judas didn't. Worship is never practical. Worship is always spiritual. It's relational. Worship is what you might call non-utilitarian. Rather than yield a benefit, worship's goal is to bless God. You see, worship is like buying flowers. Practically speaking, a dozen roses is a terrible waste of money. Hey, in a few short days, those flowers are going to wrinkle and dry up and shrivel and turn ugly. But relationally, they are of tremendous value. Worship is like those flowers. It's meaningful to lovers. And that's the difference here between Judas and Mary. You see, Mary was a lover of God. Judas was a lover of money. The word Judas means praise, and yet praise was something Judas knew nothing about. Jesus finishes his statement to Judas in verse 8. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And here's a lesson for the church. When the needs of the poor take priority over the worship of Jesus, we've lost the proper perspective. Social action is important, but it should always play second fiddle to our worship. According to chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Lazarus was an effective witness for Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Martha was known for her work. Mary was known for her worship. And Lazarus was known for his witness. He was such an effective witness, he made the Jewish hit list. You'd think they would want to kill Lazarus. Or they did want to kill Lazarus, but it's interesting to me. Why would you want to kill Lazarus? Jesus might just raise him from the dead a second time. <laughs> it's interesting. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the story of the rich man in hell who pleaded to Abraham to send back the poor man, who, by the way, whose name was Lazarus, to warn his brothers of the terrors of hell that awaited them if they continued in their evil. And, and you remember, when he asked Abraham this, Abraham answered, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But the rich man persisted, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. How ironic. A different Lazarus did come back from the dead, did tell them the truth. And rather than believe in, their witness, in his witness, they wanted to kill him. Apparently, old Abraham was right, wasn't he? Passover drew a big crowd to Jerusalem. They say the city swelled from 50,000 to a quarter of a million people during Passover. In fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus rode a donkey into the city to the cheers of the crowd. They shouted Psalm 118, Hosanna, which means save now. When Jesus doesn't save now, and he doesn't fulfill their messianic expectations, the people who wanted to crown him end up wanting to crucify him. While Jesus makes his triumphant entry, a Greek delegation approaches Philip with a special request. It's interesting that Philip was the only one of the disciples with a Greek name. That's why they probably singled him out and approached him. Verse 21, they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? 
That should be our desire as well. What a great, great way to just sort of sum up your life. I wish to see Jesus. In verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now you would think that Jesus would have already been glorified many times over. He would have already had His moment of glory. When He was transfigured on the mountain, what a moment of glory. When He raised Lazarus from the dead, again, a moment of glory. You and I think of Jesus' life as being glorious from beginning to end. But what did Jesus see here as His moment of glory? He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. To Jesus, His glorification was His crucifixion. The cross was the culmination of His coming. It was the ultimate act of obedience. It was the brightest display of Jesus' nature and character and mission. Six hours on a Roman cross would be Jesus' moment of glory. Jesus knew His death would become the seed of salvation for many people. He says in verse 24, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. In chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says that his soul is troubled over what lies ahead. But he's not about to back down. Don't misunderstand. Jesus was born to die. He has no second thoughts as the deadline approaches. On the cross, sin will be judged. Satan will be cast out. And when the Messiah is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. The Father in heaven speaks to comfort him in verse 28 and assures him that he will glorify his Son. Verses 42 and 43 of chapter 12 tell us that there were believers in Jesus, even within the Jewish hierarchy. But they were afraid to openly embrace him. John says, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. What a tragic thing to be said about you. Be said about me. You know, closet Christians are still around us, though. People who love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They work in the same office for years. And yet they keep their faith under wraps. No one ever knows. They're afraid to go public. Guys, there's not much commitment in the closet. It's time for us to bust out. Be a witness like Lazarus. To tell the world that once we were blind, but now we see. Give glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. And there we have our chapters for tonight.